I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. Hello, I'm Dr. Jack West, Associate Clinical Professor in Medical Oncology at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area and host of the ISLC podcast, Lung Cancer Considered, where we are very happy to be joined today by Dr. Shuyan Shao, who is Professor of Pathology at the University of Chicago and who is the senior author of the just published and very timely report in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology entitled Pulmonary Pathology of Early Phase 2019 Novel Coronavirus Pneumonia in Two Patients with Lung Cancer. Dr. Shao, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Glad to be here, Dr. West. Uh, please call me Jack. We're friends now. Uh, so Hi, Jack. <laughs> let's go back to where this started. I know you're from Wuhan and you work at the University of Chicago. My understanding is that you were visiting Wuhan at the time of the, the initial outbreak of COVID-19 several months ago. Can you tell us about the context of your being there and what led you to become involved in some of the early work uh, supporting the medical community and fighting the virus? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. So um, as many of us know that uh, during the recent years, many um, universities and the medical centers in the United States have been developing partnership collaborations with their counterparts in China over the years, right? So uh, both in academics, patient care, and education. Uh, through Usually for the medical centers, through their global health initiatives. And uh, so the University of Chicago and Wuhan University also have had this exchange programs in various, various fields for many years. So one of these is actually um, it's in education, mainly in medical school teaching and the clinical residence training between uh, University of Chicago Medicine and uh, Zhongnan Hospital of Wuhan University. Right? So it is with this uh, under this context that I have accepted an invitation to spend a significant portion of my, of my professional effort in Wuhan um, while on a partial leave of absence from the University of Chicago. So, um, so periodically, I still have clinical duties at the University of Chicago Medicine. So my main involvement in Wuhan was to direct a, the Wuhan University Center for Pathology and Molecular Diagnostics. And, uh, you know, under this role, I have also been involved in improving patholo pathologist trainings and uh, pathologi pathological practice in China, particularly in Hubei province. So I've also, under this, uh, in this capacity, I have uh, facilita been facilitating clinical uh, collaborations between other clinical uh, faculties in other clinical fields, such as general surgery, um, gastroenterology, and so on. So uh, over the years, there's uh, many kinds of uh, exchanges between these two hospitals. That's, it has been quite an enjoyable experience, and uh, a lot of faculties from both sides have uh, benefited from this. 
So I I uh, I perform this role both by on-site visit and also by using remote communication technologies such as telepathology. So uh, um, also because I have to, um, I am also involved in consulting on difficult cases, clinical cases. So I also get a, uh, obtained the permit from the local uh, health commissions to practice medicine in China, in Wuhan particularly. So this gave me uh, the uh, condition for me to have direct patient care uh, over there in China. So this particular visit actually was pre-scheduled. I was scheduled to be there for a month. And uh, during this time, uh, the outbreak became uh, more uh, significant than that's how I got involved. Now, some people might have decided that in the setting of a potentially life-threatening infection, they would return to the U.S. as soon as possible. What was your thought process at the time? Did you consider turning back and going to back to Chicago? Or how did you decide to commit to, uh, to supporting the medical community there? Um, so this is a kind of retrospectively, uh, I have to think about it. So my activities in Wuhan, as I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, so my activities in Wuhan and Chicago are usually pre-scheduled uh, quarterly, usually three months in advance. And um, so I was originally scheduled to be in Wuhan until the February, until the 18th of February. And my airplane ticket is booked already. So when the lockdown occurred in January, um, I did not plan to come back because it's just uh, there's no reason for me to come back. So uh, I don't think that I had a big concern about the safety because I am with 9 million other people there. So, and so what, <laughs> there's no absolute safe place. And I, I, I was kind of nervous like everybody else, um, not knowing the, how severe the, the epidemic could become. Uh, so I was just hoping because of that, uh, the total lockdown, which I at the time I thought is could be very effective. Uh, basically, people are not in contact with anybody else. There's no trans. Uh, they, this should uh, stop the transmission quite efficiently. And uh, if the hospital is taking in all the infected patients, it takes about say if the incubation period is about the longest fourteen days, as have been published. Within that time frame, I was hoping that things will start to quiet, will quiet down in mid-February, that I should be able to just come back to return to Chicago as a pre-scheduled, as a pre-scheduled flight, and uh, because I have work scheduled in Chicago at the time. Um, so before that, before the pre-scheduled uh, travel date, I could just stay and uh, help. That's, that's how it, it was. Very good. Um, the paper describes a nearly unique set of circumstances. So can you tell us what were the key features in the two patients that you detail in your manuscript? Uh, yes, uh, of course. So it really showed, uh, basically as the paper described, we didn't see a lot of pathology. Basically, we just saw 
the epithelial uh, alveolar epithelial cells been damaged. Some of them being uh, sloughed off, and there's uh, the main finding is exudate of proteinaceous fluid. Uh, some people qualify that for pulmonary edema. And there is a patchy infiltrate of mononuclear inflammatory cells, um, which uh, constitutes of um, some lymph, small number of lymphocytes and macrophages, I think. So all in all, this will be a quite nonspecific and early change uh, what we attribute to COVID-19 pneumonia that uh, the, it fully developed later on. So. Um, this is the main finding, and this is a finding that uh, you would one would not observe in uh, autopsy, where the patient have developed developed full spectrum pathology. And these patients had undergone surgery for a lung cancer that was planned already, uh, but they did not have known infection, they didn't have any significant symptomatology, is that correct? Correct. So to this point, what view do we have of the lung pathology that is initiated by COVID-19 in the early stages of disease? Do we have any good insights, information, maybe from bronchoscopies, or is this predating that in terms of the the absence of sufficient sufficient radiographic or symptomatic uh, issues that would have led to uh, investigating pathology, essentially. Uh, yes. So, um, so these two patients, other than the history of lung cancer and the surgery, um, they did not have a particular symptom that attribute to, that attribute to pneumonia at the time. Um, so, it will not, we will not have a situation where the patient will have bronchoscopic biopsies. I mean, that's just no need. This was purely coincidental. Um, however, uh, so after that, since then, uh, we had some updates. Uh, first of all, um, an effort to perform autopsies on patient started quite early on. However, it uh, took a long time for the authorities to approve autopsies. So in the end, there are quite a few autopsies performed by other investigators where we have not, so far we have not seen the result being published yet. It's been taking a long time. However, um, absence of autopsy at the time when I was still in Wuhan, I proposed that we could use a post-mortem needle core biopsies of this uh, important organs. So meaning that it's, uh, it's a kind of a, a strange concept. So in, in a way it is autopsy, but it's not a full autopsy. You are doing using biopsy technologies to do it. So we were able, uh, actually if you, uh, in literature, there's a, after we, um, when I was in Wuhan, I discussed this option with a lot, with many pathologists in Wuhan. We have a huge WeChat group. So a group in Beijing actually performed one um, postmortem needle core biopsies, and the result of that study has been published. We also performed, uh, when I was in quarantine in San Diego, 
uh, as I mentioned earlier, that I use telecommunication a lot in coordinating work with colleagues in Wuhan. So we were able to get um, post-mortem biopsies on four fatal cases. Yeah. And uh, so the result of those, that study has been uh, posted on preprint uh, a few days ago. And the manuscript is also accepted by modern pathology. So it should become, it's, it's available now. And in those, in that particular study, we should consider that as an update of this current, of the JTO paper, is that we're actually looking at lung pathology from patient who has the actual disease. And obviously, by definition, it could be this, this represent more severe form of this disease. Would you presume that this pattern of the pathology that was observed in these two rather incidental cases is likely to be a prevalent one uh, among minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic folks out there with COVID-19 infection? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, so this can be, fir- I think there's, uh, this are two really uh, unique cases where uh, we have the uh, specimen, the lung specimen that were taken while a patient uh, still in early stage of the disease because uh, they were already, by the time that we look at the lung, the, the lung tissue were removed, the patient already had some radiographic signs of uh, the disease, even though patients were asymptomatic. However, more such cases would further confirm uh, our finding. Fortunately, uh, this is not u- uh, that unique because I've, since we have identified and published this, um, other physicians in Wuhan, you know, there are three, there are five major hospitals in Wuhan. Uh, three others were much larger than Zhongnan Hospital. So they all had the very similar clinical situations. Well, during the early stage of the outbreak, patients came to the hospital for other purposes, including surgery for lung cancer. And uh, so they retrospectively, after being inspired by our finding, they have gone back to their database and identified additional similar cases where patients had surgery for lung cancer and also had COVID-19. So I am still waiting for them to publish their studies. And I think and I hope that their studies will confirm what we have found. But just by, um, by this kind of a timeline, looking at the back of the history of the patient, how, so how long did this, um, between, how, how long did it take for this lesion to occur radiographically and the patient became symptomatic? We can, we can um, extrapolate that um, in many mild cases, so-called, or common cases where patients did not have respiratory difficulties, they probably had this kind of early stage of, of change in their lungs. Even though we don't, even though it's not necessary to perform bronchoscopic biopsies on these early patients, we still have the opportunity because of this unique situation. 
where a patient uh, had a surgery done before their infection were, could be identified. Otherwise, you would not do the surgery. When did you return exactly to the U.S.? And then what did you do uh, when you got here? When did you get back to Chicago? Okay, that seems a long time now. <laughs> so, um, so originally, I planned to stay um, till my prearranged travel date. And so when... Um, when there's a before there's a lockdown, and there's talking about lockdown and during lockdown, uh, they were asking me to come back. I said uh, I declined the uh, opportunity. But eventually, um, United Airline canceled all my flights, that pre-booked flights. And if I did not try to find a way to come back, then I would miss my clinical schedule in Chicago. So I took uh, one of the last evacuation flight, uh, I believe it was February 6th, and uh, came back, uh, one of those cargo planes came back to the U.S. And um, I was, uh, like everybody else, put into a mandatory 14-day quarantine uh, in San Diego. And uh, uh, after I completed that, um, they allowed us to come back to Chicago. I was just right on time to be on clinical service here. Perfect. Um, so what's it been like? You're one of the very few people who has experienced directly the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, you know, the trajectory of it rising and coming under somewhat better control in Wuhan, and then coming to the U.S. and watching it in a totally different healthcare system and society, uh, but you know, like a, a time shift. Uh, what has that been like seeing and living through COVID-19 in China and then now in the US at, at a different point in the curve? Uh, yes, uh, so um, this is, it is quite a different. Um, even though I have been trying to convey what uh, the lessons and uh, that that we should learn from uh, experiencing Wuhan, but there's still a huge difference uh, between uh, the attitude, be, be, I mean, in attitude and uh, measures between the two different countries. Uh, so we all know that early during the early phase of the outbreak in Wuhan, um, people did not know about the significance or magnitude in terms of how many patients were sick and uh, uh, how they were doing because there was a lack of information. It was not quite, not quite transparent at the time. And, uh, we knew that many healthcare workers got infected by taking care of patients in the hospital, not particularly patients with COVID-19, but just regular patients. And uh, so that's of related to the two cases we described in the paper. However, um, ever since the lockdown and when both the government and the citizens uh, started treating this very seriously, knowing that we have to, they have to uh, somehow uh, stop uh, the transmission and the spread of the disease, 
and their measure was the measures were very uh, strict. First of first of all, uh, the lockdown means total lockdown, so there's no regular uh, air or train transportation between other parts of China and Wuhan. And also, this uh, applied to pretty much implemented in other parts of China too. And in Wuhan, uh, all the public transportations were immediately stopped, so people could not travel. Only uh, the private cars could be uh, used. However, that uh, was kind of limited too, because uh, the rule was very strict that people should stay in their home, not coming out. And uh, I think it was necessary for a city that big and with the population so dense. In terms of the hospitals, um, first of all, uh, they discharged most uh, non-COVID patient home because they don't want to have cross-contamination, uh, cross-infection in healthcare facilities. And so a lot of the regular work has stopped. And the only uh, for uh, doctors in the Department of Puma, uh, Pu- uh, Respiratory Medicine, Infectious Disease, and Critical Care Medicine, other physicians were asked to just have a uh, just uh, have very essential people to be on surface. Other people will be staying at home and take uh, take turns to rest at home. Anyone, so there was a, in terms of PPEs, all the healthcare uh, workers on active duty would be wearing the spacesuit type of PPE all the time. Uh, so that's how it was in China, in particularly in Wuhan. So in the U.S., um, I knew, I heard that um, PPEs were uh, advised for, necessary, required for uh, healthcare workers who are directly dealing with uh, people, with patients with flu-like symptoms, uh, understand, understanding that those are, the, those are the ones potentially infective. However, they were not widely uh, required for uh, healthcare workers who are dealing with other types of I mean, non-fever patients. So I don't know what is the percentage of those patients without flu-like symptoms could be potentially infectious and how much that has contributed to the healthcare workers being infected here. I don't know the figure because um, in order to um, to know um, the real number of patients who are uh, who are uh, who have been infected or exposed to this virus without symptoms, we have to conduct a zero epidemiological study, which has not been conducted anywhere in the world, even though antibody tests have becoming available for a while, and uh, so. The other thing um, is that in China, when there's a lockdown, it really means lockdown, but in the U.S., it's not that strict. I mean, uh, so people can still go out and uh, walk around. And uh, uh, I don't know, this has a negative, positive uh, effect on the transmission because uh, here the population density here is much lower. And if you go out to walk around in the community, you probably don't see anyone else. 
And if you keep social distancing, I mean, that's fine. Uh, the other aspect I think that in Wuhan, before the lockdown on January 23rd, there has been a window of one month and a half in which the disease is already going on pretty severe in certain parts of Wuhan, but the business were uh, as usual and the people were gathering together. There's a big banquet, dinner, meetings, and so on. Uh, in the U.S., well, I can speak particularly for Chicago. Uh, when we start to have cases in the like 10 or 20 cases, the entire city has implemented uh, social distancing measures, including closing down of sitting restaurant. But of course, now many restaurants have been closed. So um, in terms of um, prevent preventive measures in the community in Chicago, I think we are doing a much better job uh, in preventing the transmission of disease. So just from this point of view, uh, I am still uh, kind of optimistic in a way, meaning that the number of cases and also clinical outcomes will not be as severe as what we have seen in China, uh, partly because that we, uh, we have a, a pretty clear awareness of the problem, of the, out, of the consequence of an uh, outbreak. Uh, so, um, in terms right. of there's I mean, also... Uh, I was going to say that clearly with us seeing in the U.S. the severity of this in China, and of course, just a few weeks before us, you know, Italy and Spain and, and other parts of Europe being really decimated by this. I think that has been a, a sobering wake-up. But I also would say that the U.S. is is an interesting testing ground because we've seen such geographic variability in policies uh, and aggressiveness of social distancing and different policies toward uh, whether businesses are open and, and when people work from home. So I think... Uh, I'm hopeful as well, but I also would say that there's a lot of potential for this to uh, be perpetuated for longer in places that have had a more casual attitude toward toward uh, uh, these restrictions. Yes, I agree. So uh, this is a very good point, Jack, is that uh, in China, all the measures were quite uniform and strict. In the U.S., as you mentioned, they kind of varies among uh, between different geographic areas uh, and uh, cities and uh, states. So uh, it'll be interesting to see the different outcomes. For example, I know, we know that New York City is much worse because of the, probably one of the reasons because of their population density is much greater. So it comes back to the difference in terms of medical care. So in China, they were diagnosing patients the first by clinical symptom and then follow up by a chest CT scan where they can see a patient with uh, lung lesions. And then they will test a patient for nucleic acid test for, uh, for the uh, pharyngeal swabs. Here in the U.S., chest CT scan 
is almost never used. And when, uh, if, it's, if you need an imaging study, I think mostly they use uh, chest X-rays. So that's one of the differences. Uh, in terms of uh, diagnostic criteria, uh, eventually in China, um, nucleic acid test positivity, including patients who has exposure history without much symptoms, if they, their nucleic acid test is positive, they're counted as confirmed cases. Um, but in the U.S., uh, at least, uh, I mean, test policy algorithm is different, um, uh, varies among different cities. In here, locally in Chicago, first you have to, um, at least like last week, you have to have flu-like symptoms and you have to have high-risk features underlying disease. And you have the uh, age is also a consideration criteria. So only after you have met a series of criteria, then you get tested. If it's a positive, you are considered to confirm the cases. And uh, so there's a lot of difference between the two countries. And uh, so we, we may never know the real figure as how many people were truly infected, symptomatic and asymptomatic, unless we perform a uniform uh, serology test. So we can find out. Right. I mean, one of the real limitations of trying to grapple with numbers is knowing that you won't find a fever if you don't take a temperature. And testing has been so limited in in many places, including in the U.S. right now, where there has not been a systematic rollout of testing. And, and the cases that you describe of these clinically unsuspected but infected patients, uh, we've already known that uh, that is probably quite prevalent, but we really don't have a good handle on how common that is in a broader population. So I, I think we very likely may never know that until we are doing much more systematic testing. Exactly, exactly. Now, uh, you had mentioned that you have been pursuing telepathology, and obviously pathology is a field of medicine that lends itself well to remote work. Um, and I would say, though, that I've talked with some colleagues who are pathologists, uh, that telepathology has not yet been uh, used to its full potential. You were using it somewhat in China, and you travel extensively, and then you were quarantined. And I imagine that lots of uh, healthcare professionals, myself included, are, you know, are working from home now. Uh, do you see that that uh, telepathology is going to have a significant boost in utility? And and I'd like to know whether you think that is likely to be sustained if if it is being done right now. If in four or six months or longer, uh, it's always going to, uh, whether we will see in four or six months a lasting effect of far more telemedicine and particularly telepathology than, than several months ago. Yes, uh, Jack, this is a very interesting question and a very interesting topic to discuss. Uh, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this interview, 
um, there are many hospitals, major hospitals in the U.S. has been collaborating with Chinese counterparts. Part of that clinical activity is through telemedicine, where they identify patients and they can present the clinical symptoms and the patient can talk to the uh, clinicians here in terms of making diagnosis and suggesting treatment algorithm and so on. So among that, or under that large context, uh, telepathology has been, the idea has been here for many years, I think over 20 years, but it has never been truly uh, like implemented in the full scale. Personally, I have a lot of experience in using it. Uh, I don't know much about it, about the technology, but I have been using it quite frequently in several different ways. Most basically, people have been using telepathology for education purposes. And the pathologists are using, using to share cases, and you can just view other people's cases online. And uh, I have been mostly using it a while uh, because of my role as a director of pathology over in Wuhan. And the part of the time I spend in Chicago, but um, difficult cases arising all the time. So, um, so I have been, whenever there's a cases there that I'm not uh, physically over there, they will scan the case into a server that I can access from Chicago and look at it and make diagnosis and issue report. And that effort is also part of a larger uh, goal of our collaboration between Department of Pathology of University of Chicago and Wuhan University, where we hope that uh, because my specialty, some specialties in GI pathology, so we have all kinds of other pathologies, like gynae pathology, lung pathology, and bone soft tissue, and so on. So we have also have other type of cases being scanned on, and then our colleagues, my colleagues in University of Chicago, will log on and look at it. So we have uh, been using it for quite a while, but just not that. But the, uh, the uh, lo- logistic uh, issues has been still undergoing improvement. And uh, however, telepathology cannot replace regular pathology entirely for a variety of reasons. First of all, um, the, there's still a speed problem that's a limitation and uh, between uh, through the internet. Number two, no matter how good the technologies are currently, uh, there's still a resolution problem at that definition, high definition, because uh, I have looked at some cases because one uh, I just don't, uh, when I have consult cases, I will have quite experienced junior uh, faculty over there look at the cases very carefully. And then I look at on the image, uh, the whole scanned image uh, on the server, and then we actually compare our findings. And uh, even though we can see the main features, sometimes very detailed things such as, say, for example, some kind of granuloma, a very tiny areas of lesion that one sometimes can still miss. So uh, I, I pointed that out just to say that we have to be very careful not to completely rely on the images on the internet. We have still have to have local quality control in order to avoid mistakes. So that being said, um, for our second paper, just as I mentioned earlier, because the biopsy, Postmodern biopsies are performed after I left Wuhan. 
So I have to look at all those four cases through telepathology over here and then describe the pathological changes. So that is a perfect example where um, for uh, using telepathology for international collaborations that uh, people, no matter where you are, if you have a rare case or difficult case and you want uh, multiple experts to, uh, to give input on the new findings, you can put it on the internet and then doctors from all around the world can look at the same case and uh, contribute to the, uh, the, to, to the discoveries. Uh, so I think telepathology is here to stay. And uh, while used carefully with good quality control, it will play a much bigger role than it is now. That being said, recently, um, because of the outbreak in the U.S., many pathology because and the social distancing, many department pathologies in uh, departments of pathology in the U.S. as in asked some people to work from home, and so the issue of telepathology came up. Um, but I think currently in the U.S., um, CMS is not uh, this request has not got uh, not. Uh, uh, being through the approval by CMS or some other or clear or some other regulatory agencies, I'm not very um, uh, clear about that. So, College of American Pathologists (CAP) has had uh, some pathology in the country, starting a some kind of petition to ask the rules or regulations be loosened a little bit, so that pathologists can actually stay at home. So without going to the hospital where they have a risk of being exposed to patients and uh, making diagnosis. So right now, I don't think that has been approved yet, but I hope that eventually that will be approved because um, not every single case uh, can be resolved by telepathology. However, the vast majority of them should be able to be allowed to be diagnosed remotely through telepathology. Similar to in clinical oncology, the challenge of trying to minimize patient exposure to potential uh, infections has has led to a huge, uh, a very rapid adoption of telemedicine visits when feasible. But just as you mentioned, there's limitations to it. It's not the perfect tool for the job in every case. But, uh, but I think it is really helpful to finally have it adopted more broadly and, and incorporated when it is uh, a great tool. So I, I think that's going to be uh, at least one uh, valuable change in this new world order. So uh, anyway, thank you so much for your thoughts on these uh, many issues. It's a, a very challenging time for people all over the world, but it does bring many of us together talking about how we can approach this collectively. And, uh, and on behalf of ISLC, the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, uh, I do want to thank you, Dr. Shaw. I want to thank our listeners. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.